to Tuesday Cafe. I'm Sean Canan, and we are broadcasting live on August 1st from the studios of WMNF in Tampa. Later this hour, we're going to hear about a new Florida elections law that was in part blocked by a federal court. That law places restrictions on voter registration groups, among other things. And we will get the latest from the ACLU coming up in uh, just a few minutes. First up, though, we're going to hear a range of opinions about recent changes in state law when it comes to civil litigation and impacts things like lawsuits involving automobile insurance in Florida. The state legislature passed what it calls tort reform that modifies how civil remedies in lawsuits are determined. For one thing, it got rid of something called one-way attorney fees. That new law was the subject of a recent panel of the Tampa Tiger Bay Club. And I want to thank WMNF's Chris Young for recording that for us. So over the next 20 minutes or so, we're going to hear from this panel of three experts. We'll hear from William Large, who is with the Florida Justice Reform Institute. That's a group that advocates for tort reform. He was deputy chief of staff for Governor Jeb Bush. He lobbied to pass the bill we're talking about here, HB 837. And then we'll also hear from Steve Barnes, who is the president of Tampa Bay Trial Lawyers Association. He began his career representing insurance companies, but then he switched to representing consumers. And we'll hear from Jennifer Feld, the owner of Feld Legal. That company does mediation and dispute resolution in tort litigation. So the first question that these three panelists answered was, why did the legislature pass this new law to do away with one-way attorney fees and not just get rid of PIP, and that's personal injury protection. So here are the three panelists, beginning with tort reform lobbyist William Large here on WMNF Tampa. In Florida, there's something called personal injury protection insurance. It's often referred to by the acronym PIP. It is the first $10,000 of no-fault coverage um, that you have to buy, okay? Everyone who is driving a car should have PIP coverage. That's to be distinguished by what people, other people have. Approximately 70% of the people have bodily injury insurance called BI, and you can purchase that at different levels, like a $25,000 per incident, $50,000 aggregate policy. The PIP system started in the 1970s in Florida. There was a gentleman named Professor O'Connell who went around the country advocating for a no-fault system, okay? Many people believe the PIP system is broken, and one of the reasons I believe it was broken was because it led to litigation over low-dollar amounts because of the one-way attorney's fee provision, which was just abrogated in House Bill 837, okay? Now, One of the reasons that I personally have advocated against going from a PIP to BI system was twofold. One was the attorney's fee provision, and two was something called third-party bad faith reform was needed, which was also fixed in House Bill 837. With those two arguments removed, potentially it will open the door for a smooth transition from PIP to BI. So I think one of the reasons we haven't gone from PIP to BI in the state of Florida was because of the one-way attorney's fee provision, which we just got rid of, and number two, a failure to reform third-party bad faith litigation, which we just reformed, 
okay? There are a group of stakeholders in the healthcare community that like PIP. And the reason they like PIP is because it's a no-fault coverage. So your orthopedic physicians, your emergency room physicians, they will have instantaneous payment if there's an auto accident. They want to maintain PIP. There are stakeholder groups primarily from that area that want to maintain it. The plaintiff's bar traditionally has wanted to go to a mandatory BI system. Opinions from the insurance industry has varied on what to do there. Some insurers use PIP as a loss leader to get people into the door to sell them other products. Um, some insurers do want to go to BI if those two subjects were fixed. So one of the reasons I believe PIP has never been able to be addressed in Florida was the one-way attorney's fee and third-party bad faith. And that's what makes it different this year. It is a great question, okay? Um, and forgive me if I don't call this tort reform, okay? It's constitutional right removal. Okay, that's what this is. It takes away y'all's rights. There's nothing that's been reformed at all. Um, in terms of the PIP, it's a head scratcher for me because two sessions ago, as William knows, we had consensus in Tallahassee. Now those two words, consensus and Tallahassee, don't get put in the sen sentence very often together, okay? But we had consens consensus, it passed. PIP, in my view, is a broken system. It's abused. And we had everybody agreeing to it and it passed and it was vetoed. So we had that done. And I'm president of the Tampa Bay Trial Lawyers Association here in, in, in Tampa this year. And our mission is to keep the courthouse doors open. There's a constitutional provision in this state in section 22 that says jury trials shall remain secure and be inviolate for all. And when you hear the word tort reform, no that there's politicians in Tallahassee taking away that right and making decisions that a jury's supposed to be making. This bill does tremendously much more than PIP reform was gonna do. I commissioned my law firm to go back 10 years, hundreds if not thousands of files, and I wanted to compare an ER visit if somebody had an auto case versus an ER visit if somebody had a slip and fall case. And I know when I say that, William immediately knows the difference. Auto, you have PIP, $10,000 pays medical bills, a trip and fall, slip and ball property case, you do not. And we found overwhelmingly that hospitals or chiropractic clinics or physicians, when there was PIP, a hospital would call a trauma alert, get a trauma team on. They'd call, even if it was just a neck complaint at the scene of the accident, they'd order a CT scan of the head, CT scan of the abdomen, perhaps a CT scan of the spine, and you walk out with a $35,000 hospital bill. The same person, or a different person, same complaints walks in, and they were injured on a property. ER physician comes in and sees them, they're triaged, they're diagnosed, and they're, they're turned away uh, and let go with a $1,500 bill. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out what's going on. We, the plaintiff's bar, wanted to reform this, and it got vetoed. So the title of this, and I'm not going to go into the long title, but is tort reform harmful to Florida and my families? 100% it is. 
I was born and raised here. I work here. I represent folks like you every single day. And if I thought for one moment what happened in March of this year was good for you, good for my two girls, good for my three boys, I'd be sitting in his seat instead of mine. It is not. And this is a great example of why it's not. I think you've heard both sides of the debate. So as you're going to see today, I'm going to give you kind of a, I'm going to give you kind of the neutral, okay? So I'm going to comment on what they both said, all right? So um, because I agree, I do truly agree with both of them. So one of the things that William said was about the fee shifting. And before I even get to that, let me just give you the way I describe to people that come into my mediations about PIP versus BI. PIP, again, P-I-P, personal injury protection. It's personal to you. Okay, it's for you. That means you get in an auto accident, you get hurt. That is your $10,000 to use on your medical bills. Bodily injury, BI, is for protection for you if you hit someone else. So that's, that's someone else that would come against you and they say, oh, you, you're at fault. That's your bodily injury protection. I like to tell people it's kind of like different buckets. Okay, so think about it as different buckets of money on your insurance policy. It's why there's different lines there. And there's different rules around each line. So there's different rules for PIP and different rules for bodily injury. But something that I've seen in terms of getting cases resolved that I'll, I'll side with William on this one issue is about the fee shifting provision. So a lot of times when cases are trying to get resolved, we get into the legalese of everything and the risk of potentially taking a case to trial. Okay, and when there was essentially automatic attorney's fees, it was very appealing to take cases to trial and not necessarily resolve them. But with the reform having had an effect on the attorney, the fee shifting, that has, in my opinion, led to more resolution of cases, okay? But now I'm gonna flip, that's one point I'll just put on the table. Now I'm gonna talk about something that Mr. Barnes said uh, that I agree with, and that is the increased medical bills and the different people that have an interest in this. So you may know or you may not know that most people walking around don't have health insurance. I'm just gonna say it, okay? Most people walking around, the average person that comes into the cases to get their case resolved, they might not have health insurance. So if they're involved in an auto accident, the PIP is available to them to pay for those medical bills. And the PIP comes first. A lot of people come in, they say, oh, I've got health. I've got health insurance, it's covered. Or I don't have any health insurance. Your PIP comes first when you're in an auto accident. And because some of these uh, stakeholders do know that they are gonna get paid versus a lot of people walk in the hospital with no insurance, they don't know if they're gonna get paid, okay? Um, so for that reason, I believe the hospitals, ER doctors, whatever, charge a higher fee because it is then later negotiated down, all right? But they know at least they're going to get paid. So hopefully that just adds a little bit of interpretation for a point that they each made um, so that you kind of understand where they're coming from in their arguments. That's Jennifer Feld, who does mediation and dispute resolution in tort litigation. Before her, we heard Steve Barnes, president of Tampa Bay Trial Lawyers Association, and William Large with the Florida Justice Reform Institute, a group that advocates for what it calls tort reform. And we're talking about a new Florida law that changes how civil lawsuits occur, including how automobile insurance cases play out. Keep in mind that in about 15 minutes, we're going to switch gears and hear about another new Florida law. So I hope you stay tuned for that. That one is about restrictions to voter registration groups. We'll hear from the ACLU of, on that one. You're listening to Tuesday Cafe. I'm Sean Canaan. We're broadcasting live from WMNF on August 1st. Here's the next question that came from Betsy Havner, and it was about the comparative negligence part of this new law. And we'll hear there, we'll hear responses from all the panelists. So here is first from Steve Barnes, president of the Tampa Bay Trial Lawyers Association. 
You're listening to Tuesday Cafe. My question relates to the comparative negligence aspect of the um, legislation. I have two questions. First, is it going to make it more difficult for people to get representation if there's not very clear evidence as to who's at fault? And second, is it going to cause a lot more people to be on public assistance who may have a devastating injury, but were more than 50% negligent? The answer to your question is yes and yes. So what was the old law? Okay. And the argument we hear is somebody who is at fault shouldn't recover for their own injuries and their own damage. I agree 100%. And that was the old law. We were what's called a comparative negligence state. Okay. So I know some of the people in this room, I'm going to say, Courtney, if you were driving a car and you were insured by State Farm Insurance and you hit Bill, who's sitting next to you, there's going to be a debate at who's at fault. Let's see, it was an intersectional collision and it's alleged that one person ran a stop sign and the other person coming through the intersection wasn't keeping an adequate lookout. Under the old law, if that case went to trial and it was determined, it was determined that Courtney was 60% at fault and Bill was 40% at fault and the damages were 100 grand, the judge takes away $40,000 of Bill's recovery because it would not be right for him to recover for his own fault. That's a fair system. What's happened now is we've turned into a blended comparative contributory negligence state under the guise and falsehood that it's fair. Okay? So let me tell you what happens. Let's say somebody, let's say Courtney wasn't just out for a drive that day, but she was texting as she approached this intersection and she ran the stop sign. And Bill was maybe in a little bit of a hurry to get to a doctor's appointment, so he was going a little faster than he should have. Courtney gets one bang up, great attorney, insurance company appoints him for him and they go to town. They get an accident reconstructionist, they take out measurements. It's a $40,000, $50,000 expert fee on both sides and it goes to trial and the person, Courtney, who was texting and ran a stop sign's attorney can convince a jury that Bill was 51% at fault, okay? That means Courtney was 49% at fault. Bill's claim is barred and he gets zero, nothing. Now, why is that even more unfair? Because until you get the 50% threshold, the defense gets to compare negligence. So if Courtney was 80% at fault and Bill was only 20, she's not on the hook for the 100. It still gets reduced 20%. Now, what's the practical effect of this? I had two of the, two of the four or five trials I've tried in the last 12 months involve motorcycles. Okay? And I walk into that courtroom knowing that that jury, irrespective of what the facts are, are gonna find my guy or my girl comparatively fault, okay? There's just people in this state who haven't ridden, who believe by getting on a motorcycle and not in a protective car, you're partially at fault. So I know that going in. The question is, are those people gonna have a hard time finding representation now? Well, my first trial was, and this is the thoughtfulness of our jurors, okay? When people have to give up a week or two weeks of their life to come to a courtroom, by and large, nearly 100% of the time, they take their job very serious. There are not runaway juries. There are not jack jackpot juries just doling money out. It's the exact opposite. 
But when they, when they come to that courtroom and they listen, one of my cases, my client was 27.5% at fault. Think about that. They had to go back there and debate and figure that out. In the next trial, he was, the, the other motorcycle rider was 35% at fault. I had over $130,000 in cost, experts, largely directed by what the insurance company was hiring that I had to respond to and cost on each of those files. And my law firm, my staff gets no bonuses, no pay until we're done with that case and we're paid. And if we lose, I'm out $130,000. And I love helping people and I love helping families. But if I've got to make a business decision at the beginning of the case, am I going to take a close call and commit $130,000 when 51% bars my client and I lose? I'm going to think twice. This is a horrible law. It was a gift to the insurance industry, and it does nothing to protect any of the business owners or individuals in this audience. Um, let me respond to your question in the following ways. A lot of tort cases, what happens is they're looking for a deep pocket for somebody to pay who is only tangentially involved in the fact pattern. So what we did in this case is we showed two members of the legislature who were the ultimate decision makers on this issue, verdict forms where defendants were found to be 40% at fault, but the plaintiff was 60% at fault. Some cases, the, the plaintiff ended, ended up being 83% at fault, the defendant being 17% at fault. The trucking industry was also very vocal on this issue and gave a lot of examples where an 18-wheeler was going down the road, and if an 18-wheeler is on the left-hand side of the lane and they turn into the right-hand side of the lane and they don't put their blinker on, that's called a tort, they may be liable for that, but why, was, why did the driver not put the blinker on? Because they thought the motorcyclist behind them was going the speed limit of 70 miles per hour and the 18-wheeler was going 65 miles per hour. Turns out in retrospect, the motorcyclist is going 90 miles per hour and that's why they clipped the back of the 18-wheeler. When the jury looks at all of this, they assign percentages of fault. A big part of a tort case is causation. At some point, the reason you're in the courtroom, the reason you've brought this lawsuit is because of your actions. And the legislature made the decision at 50% plus one, then you shouldn't recover. That's done in other states. It's a policy-making decision. And it affects the fact patterns where defendants who only have a tangential responsibility in terms of negligence are being brought into these fact patterns. And this is a fair way now that Florida can handle comparative fault and it will now be known as modified comparative fault. If I could follow up just for a second before we get the mediator involved, I'm used to having the last say because I've got the burden of proof. So I got to rebut this. In what world is it fair that that truck driver, if he, if he doesn't put his blinker on and wasn't looking and changed lanes and got into a lane of another person who may have been speeding, okay, doesn't have to pay his 17%. In what world is that fair? In what world is it fair that somebody who's 49% at fault, almost half, doesn't have to pay their half? And I want you to think this through, because I represent catastrophically injured people 
who have to have medical care the rest of their lives, whether it's brain injuries, severed spinal cords, horrific burns, things that will be with them forever. And if they're in an accident where they're 51% at fault and their claim is barred, they get nothing. And a moment ago, uh, there was a comment, I think Jen said, most people in this state don't have health insurance. Well, if the person that's responsible for half the damages gets off scot-free and the insurance company doesn't pay a dime, who do you think is going to pay for them the rest of their life? Everybody sitting in this room who had nothing to do with the accident, who had no fault there, doesn't know any of these people. You get it on your tax bill because it's going to go to Medicaid, Social Security Disability, and eventually Medicare. And again, that doesn't help you. It doesn't keep you safe. It harms you. And there's one entity in this state and group of people it helps, and that is the insurance industry. Plain and simple. There is no debate or argument against this. Open mind and hear the mediator. Apparently, I'm going to be last this whole day, so just prepare yourselves, y'all. Okay, so I'll give you an example of a case that I had for mediation last week. Everything's confidential, so this is just like, you know, hypothetical conversations, okay? Auto accident with multiple cars. Okay, the back car doesn't have insurance. Shame. Illegal, but shame. All right? Car, they're at fault. Chain event. Car, car, car. Bam, bam, bam. All right, straight shot. Generally speaking in Florida, generally speaking, if you're in the rear, you're at fault. Okay? So I'm at a mediation where car number two of three cars has an injured party in it, but car number two is the defendant here. Okay? Car number two comes in and they're saying, like, why am I even here? Car number one hit me and then I hit three, but I wouldn't hit three without one. Are you following? Okay? But one doesn't have insurance. And this is a, um, we'll say a pre-tort a pre reform case, okay? So car number two is not at fault, but their insurance policy is being paid out. Why? The answer is because the risk in a previous world, okay, the risk of comparative negligence is higher than, than the risk of necessarily taking that to trial. So let's talk it through. Car number one, we think everyone in the room is 100% at fault. Car number two, probably zero fault, but maybe you could put like 10%. Maybe they could have hit the brakes faster or something. All right, maybe there's something there. Car number three, they're not at fault at all, all right? So because there's a 10% chance that car number two might, maybe she could have hit the brake a little bit faster, her insurance company is paying out her insurance to injured parties, okay? That is under the prior system because the risk of a person that is really injured, let's say they have 100,000 in medical bills, you know, let's say even 200,000 in medical bills, okay? If she's 10% at fault, we're following me with the math, that's $20,000. That's more than her insurance policy. Now she's worried, all right? So under the prior system, there would be situations where parties that were not necessarily at fault, okay, would have their insurance monies paid out. And that's an example, a real life example of William's argument. All right, now let's talk about Steve's argument. I'll give you a real life example of Steve's argument. Okay, uh, plenty of cases that I've had in the past have questionable liability as they go through. And liability is typically a jury question. Who's responsible for the accident? 
I definitely resonate with with Steve's comments there in that I think lawyers are going to question whether to pick up cases that have even a, even a question of liability um, because the amount of financial burden that he has to go through to, to try these cases, um, only certain firms can support that sort of, that sort of, you know, 120,000 investment, right? Um, so I definitely think that there will be those cases to, forgot whoever answered the question now, she, I think she asked, are there going to be people that don't have representation? So I probably would agree with Steve on that point um, in that sense. So. And real quick, I missed a day in law school where insurance companies pay for something they're not responsible for. And before I leave, I want to get a list of those companies so I have them back in my office. Um, kidding, of course. No, usually, I will, I'll give a caveat that usually it's in cases where there's lower limits. So again, if it's a, a $10,000 policy and there's that risk of, oh, maybe you're only 10% liable, they a lot of times would pitch those policies as, as a risk consideration because... Again, 10 or 20% of a larger number, especially when they're damages-driven cases. Hopefully that makes sense. Yeah, and my comment would be, insurance company, do your job. Okay? Do your job. When you guys purchase a liability policy of insurance, you, you cede every bit of control of that litigation to the insurance company. You can't negotiate. You can't settle. You can't do anything, or you might breach your coverage. So it's in their hands. So in that, in that case where that second car may be 10% at fault and the damages are $200,000, pay them 20 grand and tell them to pound sand if they want to die more. But, but live up to your responsibility. That's why that system was fair. That was Steve Barnes, president of Tampa Bay Trial Lawyers Association. Before him, we heard Jennifer Feld, who does mediation and dispute resolution in tort litigation, and William Large with the Florida Justice Reform Institute, a group that advocates for tort reform. We've been hearing about a new Florida law that changes how civil lawsuits occur, including how automobile insurance cases play out. And the panelists were recently at a Tampa Tiger Bay Club forum. Let me read this quick email from David who says, I can't stand insurance companies because they're greedy and don't pay out claims when they're supposed to. Insurance always feels like a huge waste of money, especially here in Florida. I think it's good to have attorneys available to support people who need to fight their insurance companies. The state legislature needs to keep their brown noses out of our business, says David. So thank you for that email. Well, now we turn to our next segment of the show. A federal judge will talk about a new, a different new Florida law. A federal judge recently blocked part of a new Florida law that makes it more that made it more difficult for community-based organizations to register people to vote. The law is called SB 7050, and I'd like to hear what you think about it as well. You can email me at dj at wmnf.org or text 813-433-0885. And we might even get to some phone calls later in the show, 813-239-9663. And joining us right now to talk about this new law is Adriel Cepeda de Rue, Deputy Director of the ACLU's Voting Rights Project. He argued the preliminary injunction motion against Florida's new voter registration law on behalf of the plaintiffs. So welcome to Tuesday Cafe, Adriel. Thank you, Sean. Thanks for having me this morning. A pleasure to be here with you. I'm really glad that you could join us to talk about this new law and why you're fighting it. So let's begin with, why did you ask the court to block this law? Sure. Uh, Great question. Well, uh, Florida ranks uh, 47th in the nation for registered eligible voters out of all the states. Um, uh, 37% of eligible Floridians are not registered to vote. Um, And uh, this new bill would have required all organizations 
who do this type of work registering voters to file an affirmation saying that they do not employ or work with any non-citizens as they register uh, voters. Um, violations, and by, by violations I mean any uh, non-citizen that would that was working with these uh, organizations would subject those groups to a $50,000 fine, and there's no cap on, on that amount, so it could go on indefinitely. And, and this was potentially fatal to many groups, including our clients, because $50,000 standing alone is a huge sum of money. And that's, again, just for one violation. If, you know, uh, you, you, by any chance, it's three people who did voter registration work for you. And, and by, by some chance, you were not aware that they were not uh, citizens. That's a, you're talking $150,000 in fines already. Um, the, the law uh, bans all non-citizens. It's uh, irrespective of lawful or unlawful status from registering voters. So it bans uh, uh, people who've been in their communities for decades. It bans veterans uh, uh, from doing this type of, of work. Um, and this is very important and constitutionally protected work. Uh, registering voters is not just any kind of conduct or any kind of speech. It's the kind of work that the, the Supreme Court has said is, is protected by uh, the First Amendment. So we believe that the law uh, is a, a violation of um, the individuals and the group's First Amendment rights and also their equal protection rights because, again, on its face, the law classifies between non-citizens and uh, citizens, which is uh, a, a, a constitutional violation, as the court eventually decided. And this prohibition also includes lawful permanent residents of the U.S. who just they're not they don't have they happen to not be citizens, but they're lawful permanent residents. But they're still also forbidden under this law. Correct. That, that was my point. That's what I was trying to get to earlier. Uh, it treats all non-citizens the same. Um, uh, it, it's irrespective of of status. Um, three of our individual plaintiffs, for example, uh, have been in their communities for many, many years. Um, the uh, Chief Judge Walker's uh, decision, in fact, lifted up one of our plaintiffs who has been here for decades. She herself is a trained lawyer from her native El Salvador. She moved here to uh, uh, monitor elections back in, in uh, almost 20 years ago at this point. So uh, it, it, it treats, um, it, it bans lawful permanence including veterans, including people who ha work for Florida state agencies and have access to sensitive information already, it treats them the same and, and blocks them from uh, doing this vital work for their communities. And your group, the ACLU, joined other voting rights and immigrants' rights advocates to file this lawsuit. And as you said, it would specifically target provisions in the law that has to do with have to do with non-citizens and impose that $50,000 fine on those organizations for each non-citizen who handles or collects voter registration forms for it. And this is what the president of the Hispanic Federation said. Florida's latest voter registration law was unconstitutional and served no other purpose than to silence our communities. Uh, how would you respond to what your colleague there said? I would agree completely. Uh, you know, some some statistics bear this out and were uh, in, in full view of the court. Um, Hispanic Federation 70% of its canvassers who do voter registration work are non-citizens. Um, for our other organizational client, Poder Latinx, that's 90%. So this is essentially their entire workforce that would have been shut out from doing this vital 
voter registration work as early as July 1st when the law was scheduled to take effect. Um, the state's answer to those concerns was that, as you said, that the law just simply banned non-citizens from handling completed ballots. Well, that's still a huge problem because these groups would have had to find entirely new uh, uh, employees. They would have had to hope that uh, only U.S. citizens would walk through their door hoping to volunteer. Uh, and if they really wanted to play it safe, if they really wanted to avoid any chance at uh, getting stuck with this $50,000 fine, then the best option would have been to fire everyone and, and start anew. And so it really put these groups between a uh, rock and a very hard place. And we're, we're very thankful uh, that, the, that the court recognized that. We're speaking with Adriel Cepeda de Rio, de- Deputy Director of the ACLU's Voting Rights Project, and we're talking about a new Florida law that makes it more difficult for community-based organizations to register people to vote. And part of SB 750 was recently blocked by a federal judge. You're listening to Tuesday Cafe. I'm Sean Canan, and we're coming to you from the studios of WMNF Tampa. If you have any thoughts about this, you can email dj at wmnf.org, text 813 433 0885. We're coming to you live on August the 1st. And uh, Ariel, I, uh, Adriel, I should say, the um, Florida's governor and the Republicans mm-hmm. in the legislature have defended this law. They say that it was needed to make sure that elections are secure. So isn't the security of elections important? Uh, nobody disputes that the security of elections is important. And again, this was in full view before the court. Um, uh, the the issue is that the state has to choose constitutional means to address uh, that issue, to address the safety and security of elections. And what the court found here is that the, the state had failed to connect uh, the law that it passed to the problem that it said it had. So, uh, uh, sure, uh, the security of elections is, is vital and is, is, is very important, but the state pressed at the hearing had no uh, what the court called connective tissue. It didn't really say why the problem were non-citizens. What, what, uh, uh, it could not point to anything in the record that says, uh, non-citizens registering voters are, uh, uh, lead to a problem or, or highlight any security. And, uh, I should say, um, we are working, um, because this law, uh, bans protected speech, because this law classifies on its face, uh, it, it, forces the state uh, under just the case law, the state has to come up with, with a connection between the law that it, that it has passed and, and the means. It's not just, you know, um, uh, sometimes you can say, you can see like a, a speed limit, for example, and, and the state will get a pass on whether the, the safe speed is 55 or 60, but when you pass a law that essentially silences uh, uh, silences individuals from engaging in protected speech or classifies on uh, a, on the basis of a, of a protected class as alienage is, for example, then the state has to really show what's called tailoring. It has to show that the law that it's passing is, is carefully designed to address the problem that it's saying it has. And the, the state didn't do that here. 
on that point of constitutionality that you mentioned a minute ago, the judge had something to say about it. He said in, in his ruling that the challenge provisions exemplify something Florida has struggled with in recent years, namely governing within the bounds set by the United States Constitution. The judge goes on to say the free state of Florida is simply not free to exceed the bounds of the United States Constitution. Uh, that uh, seems like some strong language there from a judge. It's, it's strong, but it's, but it's correct. Uh, again, the, the state has many means at its disposal to uh, protect its elections. It just has to, to do it, it, it under constitutional means, and, and here it, it didn't do that. Um, the, the court, for example, lifted the work of our, of our clients and specifically the lengths to which they go to ensure that uh, their communities are, are well represented. Um, the fact that uh, that our, our clients engage eligible voters. It's there, again, there's no, uh, there's no indication of that. There's a problem here uh, that this law was specifically meant to address because our clients, the people who work for them are only registering um, eligible voters. The judge also said that this case arises from Florida's latest assault on the right to vote. So in, when he was saying latest assault, the judge is essentially kind of saying that the state has a history of making it more difficult for people to, to vote here. Yes, uh, this is the, just the latest in a series of, of bills and a series of laws that the state of Florida has passed over the last, uh, uh, I, I would say at this point, 12 uh, years or so um, that has landed it in the courts. Uh, parts of those laws have been blocked. Parts have, uh, you know, made their run through the courts and have eventually taken effect. But some have also been whittled or or made uh, uh, less problematic. Uh, the the judge is is absolutely correct. It's it's just the latest in a long string. Um, many of these bills have taken specific aim at uh, what we call third-party voter registration organizations like our client, Hispanic Federation, and uh, Poder Latinx. And uh, uh, yes, this is, uh, I would say, just off the top of my head, just the third in about maybe the last decade of these bills that um, takes aim at, at at those organizations and the work they do. So this judge has put a hold on certain parts of that law. What are the next step? Are there is are there other parts of the this law that are being challenged, or what's what, when will the, these parts of the law uh, get another he, day in court? Let's say what would be coming up next. That that's right. That's absolutely right. I should say um, other groups, several other groups, brought challenges to the law. Uh, we and our clients focus specifically on this non-citizen uh, ban because we do, did feel that it was particularly draconian and onerous. And as of, again, as of July 1st, it would have simply put uh, organizations out of business. And for our individual plaintiffs, you know, it would have uh, threatened their livelihoods. This is their work. This is what they do. Um, but there are other parts of the, of the law. Uh, the, the judge, the court, for example, blocked another part that... Um, makes it a felony to retain uh, voter information for um, for anything other than registering voters. And, you know, that would have prevented organizations, for example, from carrying out get-out-the-vote efforts, uh, which are also protected speech and protected conduct. Um, as of right now, uh, the, the court blocked this, this, the non-citizen provision and that uh, information uh, portion of the law from taking effect as of July 1st. Uh, the state has 
indicated that it will appeal. So uh, it, it goes on to to it goes on to an appeal at the um, 11th Circuit at the Circuit Court of Appeals. I want to remind people that our guest is Adriel Cepeda de Rio, a deputy director of the ACLU's Voting Rights Project. And we're talking about the new Florida law that makes it more difficult for community-based organizations to register people to vote. And part of that law, SB 7050, was recently blocked by a federal judge. You're listening to Tuesday Cafe. I'm Sean Canan. We're coming to you live on August 1st from the studios of WMNF in Tampa. And the the judge, one of the other things that the judge wrote in his uh, his ruling is that, and it came out the day before the 4th of July, the judge said that if it were not for this new law on the 4th of July, individuals and groups that include non-citizens might be out there registering new voters. And, and this is a quote from the judge, in doing so, they would embody those democratic ideals that for nearly 247 years have made our system the envy of the world. So um, I don't know, kind of flourishing language there to, to, to say how important it is to register to vote and that everyone be able to participate in that kind of, of action. Absolutely, Sean. Uh, maybe flourishing, but, but also accurate. Uh, that is why we, we rushed to, to court with um, what's called a preliminary injunction motion. Uh, in the normal course, you would have a case uh, take its time in the court uh, but here, we knew that as of July 1st, as of the day that this uh, bill would take effect, that our clients would essentially have to completely reorganize their efforts, would have to restructure, we would have to find new volunteers, find new staff members. Um, you know, it, for example, they would have had to make sure that uh, um, only citizen volunteers were, were touching uh, completed ballots, they, they would, which may have had to require just completely reorganizing their their offices. Um, and uh, like I said, at the worst case scenario, they could have reasonably chosen to just fire everyone because it, it would have been the easiest way to ensure maybe that, that they don't get hit with these fines. So um, the fact that this all happened right before a very um, a very vital time, uh, as is the 4th of July, when many of our, of these groups and including our clients do a lot of voter registration work out in their communities. Um, I think the, the J- chief judge Mark Walker hit the nail on the head. This is, uh, this was an important time for, uh, our plaintiffs, for our clients. And it was crucial that the law be blocked before it t- uh, takes effect. It took effect and we're very happy that it was. Our guest is Adriel Cepeda de Rue, the deputy director of the ACLU's Voting Rights Project. And one of the your colleagues on this lawsuit is the president of Latino Justice, who said that a law that would have made it a crime for non-citizens to assist with voter registration was motivated by animus and had no rational basis. And they go on to say that we will continue to fight against any attempts to suppress or intimidate voters based on their immigration status or their national origin. So motivated by animus... It, it sounds like that your your uh, your colleagues and you think that this might be kind of an intentional um, process by the state legislators to just make it more difficult for people uh, who groups that are in, involved in immigration advocacy to register people to vote. Well, you just have to look to the record as the court did. There is very little again that ties um, the ties the the mere fact that non citizens are free to 
engage eligible voters and speak to them about how important voting is and, 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 and encourage them to register. There was nothing that tied that conduct, that speech, that, that, that protected activity that our clients do that tied this to the, the problem that the state was trying or claims that it's trying to solve. So, um, in fact, the only thing in the record in the legislative record was, um, stray references to, uh, illegals or illegals not being able to do something or other. Again, this law does not make that distinction. It does not say anything about lawful or unlawful status. It treats all non-citizens the same, whether they have uh, unlawful status or whether they have been uh, members of their communities for decades, as many of our clients uh, are and, and have been. So, uh, yes, it, it's very difficult to look at this bill, look at the legislative record and be left with anything other than what uh, the president of, of Latino justice here said. Last week, I had an attorney on, uh, sorry, a, a law professor on, and uh, to, and one of the things that we did talk about was this bill and the judge's decision. So here is uh, what um, Chara Torres-Spellacy, who's a Stetson law professor, had to say about this bill, and this is, again, after the, the judge ruled, which blocked part of this bill. Here's some of what she had to say. You're listening to Tuesday Cafe. Here is Chara Torres-Spellacy speaking last week. The other frustrating thing about this is Florida has done this before. So Florida has made it nearly impossible for voter registration groups to register voters in Florida. Uh, and th it's inevitably challenged and Florida has either lost or settled those cases. So they basically stopped the law that, um, you know, made it so hard for voter registration groups like the League of Women Voters, which is why if you um, are a law nerd, if you look up the League of Women Voters of Florida, you will find that they have been plaintiffs in lots of lawsuits against Florida and that they've won lots of lawsuits against Florida because Florida has this bad habit of trying to make it more difficult to lawfully register to vote. And one of the ways they do that is they just make it completely impossible for the voting rights groups like the League of Women Voters uh, to help people get registered, which is sort of like another version of trying to make it more difficult to vote. So it's not just immigrants that that, that uh, the Florida legislature has kind of put up a boundary for. There are lots of examples that, that our law professor from last week was talking about that where the state legislature and then the governor signs a, a law that makes it harder to register people to vote and to vote. vote. Uh, absolutely. She's, she's uh, completely right. I, I do think, and I would agree, I would agree with the professor and I would say that it's, it's particular, it's a shame in particular, because as I said, Florida ranks, um, uh, ranks quite low uh, as uh, for eligible voters who are registered. It's 47th in the nation. Um, this bill and this law uh, seemed particularly uh, draconian and, and particularly worth taking the court because it, it, it's so uh, narrowly targeted uh, communities, uh, marginalized communities that our clients serve like the ones, uh, again, like where our plaintiffs work. Uh, it's, it's vital for uh, Spanish speakers to do this work uh, to engage eligible voters. For example, many folks from Puerto Rico, where I'm originally from, uh, settled in Florida after Hurricane Maria, and uh, they are eligible voters. They are U.S. citizens. They can be registered to vote. But so, so it's vital to have people who uh, 
Spanish speakers, engage them and let them know just how important it is for them to be registered and for them to vote for their community's sake and for their community's welfare. So uh, that's why this law in particular was, was uh, just really couldn't stand and why our clients and why uh, many groups uh, went after this bill. And the bill you're talking about is SB 750, which a judge recently blocked part of that makes it more difficult for community-based organizations to register people to vote. But going back a year or two, in, in 2021, the Florida legislature passed an elections bill. And last year, this same judge blocked part of that. Uh, what, do you, can you tell us about that law, what that law would have done, and uh, what happened to that law after this judge uh, originally uh, blocked it? Yeah, so I believe that. So I, I believe you're talking about SB 90. That's another bill. Uh, again, it also had several provisions that targeted um, third-party voter registration organizations. Some of it has been, uh, again, as you said, Chief Judge Walker did rule that parts of it were not lawful, and I, I believe it's still working its way through the courts. It's gone up to the uh, 11th Circuit Court of Appeals at least once, I believe, and, and has come back down. But that's still in litigation. I just want to remind people that our guest is Adriel Isapeda Deriu, a deputy director of ACLU's Voting Rights Project. We're talking about that new Florida law that makes it more difficult for community-based organizations to register to vote. The bill is called SB 750. Part of it was blocked by a federal judge re recently. You're, you're listening to Tuesday Cafe. And I'm Sean Canan, and we're broadcasting live on August 1st from the studios of WMNF Tampa. If you'd like to weigh in, you can email us at dj at wmnf.org. You can also text at 813-433-0885. Maybe some people have joined us late. Um, Adriel, maybe you can tell us, just remind them, what does SB 750 do and why do, does your group oppose it? Sure. So SB 7050 does a lot of things, but in particularly the ACLU uh, with uh, with uh, allied groups like Latino Justice uh, and Demos uh, uh, challenge a part of the bill that requires all um, organizations who engage in third-party voter registration work to essentially to not employ or work with volunteers who are non-citizens, volunteers or employees who are non-citizens. These groups would have had to file an affirmation saying that they don't do, uh, that they do not employ non-citizens. And for every non-citizen that may be found later to be working with these groups, they would have to pay a $50,000 fine. Now, that is potentially fatal to many groups. Um, in the case of Hispanic Federation, one of our, our clients, for example, $50,000 is about 10% of its entire budget for Florida in a year. Uh, so you can do the math if you're, if they find, if it's three people who by chance or, or you know, by accident, uh, register voters and were found to be non-citizens, that's already $150,000 and, and so on and so forth. Uh, the bill banned all non-citizens. It treated all non-citizens the same, whether they have lawful status like our clients do, or whether they have, or whether they have uh, uh, something short of lawful status, and that includes, you know, veterans. That includes people who work in Florida state agencies that who have access to sensitive information already. Uh, and the state, it, by virtue of the fact that it is um, banning protected speech, protected conduct, and by virtue of the fact that it's targeting uh, uh, non-citizens in particularly in particular, had to uh, do what's called tailor its law 
to address a specific problem. And here it did not do that. It just blanket banned all non-citizens from engaging in voter registration work. And it, on July 3rd, uh, Chief Judge Mark Walker of the uh, federal court in Tallahassee said that the state couldn't do that and blocked the law. And we're very happy that he did. So a supporter of this law might make the argument that, okay, well, this law, all it does is it bans people who are non-citizens from doing this volunteer work or this, this paid work. Why, doesn't, why don't these groups just hire citizens that can do it? What would be the, the problem with that argument? Well, the problem with that argument, again, is that on its face, you are setting up a class of, you are, you are, you're discriminating on, on its face. You're saying uh, non-citizens may do something and uh, uh, citizens, uh, non-citizens may, can't do this activity and citizens can. And uh, there are, there are ways that that, that you can do that, uh, that are, that are lawful, but this is not one of them. Uh, again, the fact that the, the, the bill treats all non-citizens the same, uh, again, whether they have lawful or unlawful status, whether they're legally protected uh, residents, uh, le- legal permanent residents, excuse me, uh, in which case Congress has, by virtue of the fact that they have lawful status, said that they can be here, said that they can be part of their communities. Uh, the state just can't um, uh, say that they are carved out from their communities and excise these people from engaging in protected activity. Um, uh, the other a part of it, as I said, is that by banning, um, people from engaging in voter registration work, it's a first amendment violation. They are banning protected speech and protected conduct. This is not just any kind of flyer that you're handing out in the street or, or any kind of, uh, uh, of speech that, that is being banned here. This is what's called in the case law core political speech. Uh, telling people that voting is important, telling people that they should be part of their democracy, that is firmly protected under the First Amendment. And uh, it's just not something the state gets to do without violating the U.S. Constitution, as uh, the court recognized. Well, I want to thank you so much for coming on Tuesday Cafe today, Adriel. Thank you so much, Sean. Great to be here. Pleasure Pleasure to speak to you today. Thanks very much. Adriel I. Cepeda de Rieu is Deputy Director of the ACLU's Voting Rights Project. And if you missed this interview, you can watch it beginning this afternoon. It'll be on our website, WMNF.org. Tuesday Cafe also airs on the television station TBAE on Tuesdays at 8 in the morning and at 2 in the afternoon. I want to thank our phone screener, Greg. You've been listening to Tuesday Cafe. I'm Sean Canan, News and Public Affairs Director here at WMNF Tampa. During this time slot tomorrow, you can hear... Shelly Reback host Midpoint at 10. Next up is Wavemakers with Janet and Tom Sherberger. You can hear their interview with Tim Burke. This has been Tuesday Cafe coming to you live on August 1st, 2023 from the studios of WMNF Tampa, St. Petersburg, Sarasota, and Lakeland. You can support great programming like this by donating at WMNF.org. Thanks so much to everyone for supporting community radio.